This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. My name is Grace Johnson. I am the special issues editor here at Pulse. And today I am joined by special guest, Adrian Matika, who is going to be the poetry judge for our Hal Prize contest. Welcome, Adrian. Thanks for having me, Grace. Yes. So just a little bit about Adrian real quick. He's the author of, if I counted correctly, seven books of poetry with a graphic novel coming out in 2023. His poetry collection, The Big Smoke, really received the Annisfield Wolf Award and was a finalist for the National Book Award and Pulitzer Prize in Poetry. Just a few of the many honors that Adrian hasn't received include fellowship from the Academy of American Poets, the Guggenheim Foundation, National Endowment for the Arts, and he was also the Poet Laureate of Indiana from 2018 to 2019. And that is only just a few things. There was a lot more that I could have listed out, but figured we could talk about it instead of me just reading a list. <laughs> so just kind of starting off, this might be a, a, big, a big question. I usually like to start off with a big question, but in your own words, tell me about yourself. <laughs> that is a big question. It is a big question. <laughs> Who is Adrian? Yeah. What are the things that you, know, you think about yourself? Well, you know, I mean, it's it's funny because I, I think to write poetry and to try to build out a kind of worldview that centers this art requires a, a, maybe a little bit more self-reflection than it would if I was still being a DJ or, or still working at a bookstore. Those are really, I had so much fun doing those jobs and I could do them and think about the world through that lens, but thinking about it through poetry requires a, I don't know. I spend a little bit more time being introspective than than I might have if I had a kind of outward-facing job like that. It's funny to think of poetry as being a job, too, yeah. because it really is, you know, it, it's an art. And it requires a great deal of practice and requires a great deal of commitment. And so when I think about, I don't know, when I try to self-define, I think it starts with the work that I do rather than maybe fact that I really like martinis, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it comes from the outside rather than the inside. So I had seen you were born in Germany and then kind of moved around a lot before you landed in Indiana, correct? Yeah. Yeah. My dad was in the military. What was that like? I was thinking about this. I was speaking with somebody about this the other day because we, we lived something crazy, like 30 different places in oh. four years. So it was, I think it goes back to your first question. Anyone who's been sort of uh, in a military family understands a kind of itinerant lifestyle that most people are lucky to not understand. Mm-hmm. So even to this day, I think about things in terms of how much I can keep if I move, mm-hmm. because that's what we did when I was a kid. You could take as much as you can fit in this box to the next place we're moving to. And so worldly possessions were a high priority because I knew I wouldn't be able to keep them if we moved again. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't one of those kids who was collecting Star Wars toys only because I knew that I would have loved to do that. Yeah. But I knew that I wouldn't get to bring them with me even if I invested in that way. So, mm-hmm. so I just didn't. On the other hand, I mean, I got to live in Europe 
you know, I lived on the West Coast for a while, lived in Seattle and Los Angeles, and lived in Kansas randomly for a little while. And so I got to see parts of the, the country that maybe at the time were frustrating for me, but now in retrospect, it's pretty amazing to be able to get to live even for just a few months in different cities and different states. You know, I got to see the, our country in a way maybe that I wouldn't have otherwise gotten to see it. So you had mentioned, I'm going to use this as my jumping board to bring this in because this is a little tidbit about you that I enjoyed. You had mentioned Star Wars. <laughs> I read that you like Star Trek. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I only mess with the original Star Wars trilogy, not even really... Return of the Jedi, just mm-hmm. <laughs> the original Star Wars and and Empire Strikes Back. I was just a huge Star Trek fan when I was a kid, though. Uh, just, you know, the original series and then later on. I think almost all of the the spinoffs, uh, I've spent time with almost all of them. It's just, it's a fascinating kind of mythology to mm-hmm. me. You know, it's not much different from, from the kinds of myths that the, the ancient Greeks created, because so much of it is based on those old stories. Yeah. But what was really fascinating to me, I think, when I was a kid, and I didn't have the language for it, of course, but the diversity of it, mm-hmm. like the fact, I don't know how old you are, but there was a ad campaign back in the 90s and maybe early 2000s from this place, the Benetton. Mm-hmm. And it used to be the United Colors of Benetton, and they'd have all these people from different cultures and communities wearing their clothes. And... Star Trek was kind of that way before, you know, decades before. So I was drawn to the fact that it seemed closer to my experience of the world than some other shows did where there would be no black people or, you know, no Latinx people. It would just be be fairly homogenous. I mean, we saw that again with Mad Men, too, which I thought was such a tremendous show. But the fact that it was super homogenous in a way that represented a particular kind of lifestyle, a particular kind of profession. The shows when I was a kid weren't making that historical choice, right? Mm -hmm. So Star Trek really, I don't know, I mean, it just spoke to me in a way that few other shows did. And actually, Nichelle Nichols just passed away recently, and I read that they were going to send her ashes into space. So, cool. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I mean, now, now I have an idea of what I want to have happen. Well, you know, you know originally <laughs> I was excited about this because I grew up watching a lot of Star Trek because my dad was a Trekkie. Oh, nice. So it was always, you know, we never got to really pick what was on if the parents were in. And he always wanted to watch Star Trek. So, you know, original Star Trek, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, mm-hmm. all of it. Yeah. Oh, Deep Space Nine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, to the point where he passed away when I was in eighth grade. And when we were talking, because he had cancer, so he was around for a little oh. while before. Uh, before, mm-hmm. And we were talking about the, um, like, what, what's it called? The, like the epitaph, I believe it is, on on uh, mm-hmm. headstones and what he was looking for. And we had been with a family friend who was a very religious man and he had a friend with him and, you know, they were listing all these like lovely Bible verses and whatnot to put on there. And I was like, dad, why don't you do like beam me up, Scotty? And <laughs> that's what he ended up doing. So oh, my dad's uh, headstone <laughs> says, beam me up, Scotty, which I think is great. Oh, and he had, he had wanted to put his ashes on a satellite in space. Unfortunately, is quite expensive. <laughs> so yeah. We didn't quite yeah. get to do that. But yeah, it was very, Star Trek is always a big part of our, 
our household. And I'm a little bit biased, but that feels like good parenting to me. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I do. I have a, yeah. a, a great appreciation for that and, you know, a lot yeah. of fun, yeah. good memories with that. So I, I liked picking up on that when I was, you know, looking a little into family that you went through that. And I'm also the appreciative of the grace with which you handled that too, though. You know, I mean, that's a really wonderful way to think about someone's life do the things that they love instead of maybe, you know, you know, and often when we start to think about or eulogize people, it's, it ends up being not even about them. It mm-hmm. ends up being about us. And that headstone epithet is absolutely about him, mm-hmm. but also about you. And that's a really beautiful thing. Yeah. Bringing it back to your poetry. Growing up was, I know music has been, a really big part of your life from everything that I've looked at your life poetry it's all very steeped in music and there is this great interview that I had listened to the other day and how you had talked about how a it was uh, Yusef Komanyaka mm-hmm. him performing yeah. poetry and you had said it was like somebody making music out of words which I thought was yeah. a really beautiful sentiment so that kind of pushed you into poetry but even before then i know you were doing dj rap stuff you know mm-hmm. but had you ever considered a sort of life in the arts prior growing up I, no not at all i want to answer that but really quickly i want to say something about yusuf Komunyaka because he's just you know he's a genius on the page and i i really believe that I wouldn't have found this art if it wasn't for him. Even though, you know, I have so many other favorite poets, too. I didn't know about them until I got introduced to him. Mm. And so I didn't know who Gwendolyn Brooks was or Lucille Clifton or, you know, William Matthews. I didn't know any of those poets until I found Yusef. And so I think about I think about the, the writers who made room for me and inspired me uh, before I even start working on my own poems, you know, that it's the, we have to acknowledge the work that's been done, or I think we should acknowledge the work that's been done and, and revel in it before we start thinking about our, ourselves and the work that we're trying to do. But when I was younger, I had, I had no interest at all in poetry. I hadn't even read any, any of it really, except for, you know, where the sidewalk ends or something like that until I was in college. But I did <laughs> try to be a rapper and I was really bad at it. And I was in a band you know, so I wrote lyrics for the band and that kind of thing. And so when I did, when I came to poetry, I thought poetry was supposed to look like song lyrics. Um, and sometimes it can, but song lyrics aren't the same thing as poetry. Unless you're talking about somebody like Patti Smith or, or Leonard Cohen or you know Bob Marley or somebody, mm-hmm. where their their lyrics have such a deep investment in the poetics. Uh, most lyricists don't write poems; they write songs. And so. I was coming to it completely wrong. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I, it wasn't until I started to see poets who were practicing the art and thinking about language as something that exists in the world on its own. I mean, that's the big distinction. Musicians, like songwriters, have the the luxury of knowing that there's going to be a solo to pick up the lyrics if they need if they need that pickup, or there's going to be a drum in the background or a piano or something. They have all of that extra help is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And poets don't. They're just up there by themselves with the words trying to be both rhythm section and melody in one space. Mm-hmm. And that's a really tough thing to do. Yeah. I've always found it interesting, the kind of different experience of sitting 
down individually to read poetry versus listening to it performed? Yeah, yeah. It's always it's always best to to hear poets read their work. I mean, there are poets who you know whose music is it's apparent on the page when you read it you can tell there's lots of rhyme or there's assonance or consonants there's like lots of matching vowel sounds or consonant sounds you can tell that it really swings but even reading Yusef's poems it doesn't approximate the experience of hearing him mm-hmm. or read his you know it's just incredible the cadence of things the, the rhythm of it it all comes alive when the poet's reading it and I mean Obviously, I love poetry. It's what my job is, <laughs> you know, the editor of this magazine, all of that. But I would be terrible at it if I didn't acknowledge the fact that there are some poets who are really bad readers of their poems. Mm-hmm. They might be really wonderful craftspeople, but when they read, it, it doesn't bring anything to it. You know, I remember seeing Radiohead a long time ago in Houston, and they played all the songs on their albums like they sounded on the albums. And I was so disappointed. It's like, well, if I wanted to do this, I could have stayed out of this Houston humidity and just stayed home listening to the record, mm-hmm. you know? There was nothing being transformed. But then the next time I saw them, they were completely reimagining the, the individual songs, and it was, it was substantial. It was an experience. I think that that's how poetry reading should be, and that's how they are when they're at their best, is when the, the work gets transformed in a way that we couldn't transform it ourselves as readers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've got a long list. I don't want to get into the list, but there's a long list of poets who I will drop everything to go see read. Yeah. You know, Patricia Smith is one of them, Tyamba Jess. There's some people who I'm just like, oh, man. The new poet laureate, Ada Lamone, is a wonderful reader. Ross Gay. There are a lot of really terrific readers of their poems. And when you go, it feels like you're learning something about what they wrote. Mm-hmm. Ideally, that's what poets, poets do. But then there are other poets who are just super introverted and they don't want it be in front of everybody reading their work, and that's okay, too. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kewanee counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org careers. Some of Door County's best stargazing happens indoors. Every year at Door Community Auditorium, we present a star-studded lineup of concerts featuring artists like Brandi Carlile, The Lumineers, Jason Isbell, Mavis Staples, Billy Strings, Beach Boys, and Buddy Guy. You're now listening to Marty Stewart and his fabulous superlatives returning to our stage in Fish Creek, October 22nd. Visit dcauditorium.org for a full calendar of upcoming events and to get your tickets today. How does your interest in music end up translating in your own work? You know, it's always in the background because I have music playing in the background all the time. I think the last book, Somebody Else Sold the World, it was a lot more overt in that because I was making plays on the titles of albums and songs and the titles of the poems because I wanted people to know what I was listening to when I was writing them. You know, the title, Somebody Else Sold the World, came from David Bowie, from his song, The Man Who Sold the World. And it's a great album, 
a great song. Nirvana's cover of it was extraordinary. And it just it seemed right at the time when we were all stuck at home. And I didn't feel like we were getting the kind of support that we pay for <laughs> with our taxes. And I just felt we were kind of like, we just kind of are all left to our own devices, which is can be a, a good thing when you're in a community of caring people. But if you're in a community that doesn't care about each other, which can sometimes happen in the city, it isn't the best place to be, yeah. you know? Yeah, I mean, music is always there. It's kind of the foundation of, of poetry generally, in my reading of it. Mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of poems that don't sound good. Yeah. I mean, I can acknowledge the craft, I can acknowledge the work being done, but there's a reason that sonnets exist. They create music for people who maybe don't think about music in that same way. Mm -hmm. yeah. Same thing with Villanelles and Sestinas. All that repetition isn't just so you can be tricky with repetition. It makes music. And if you got a lot of people who weren't, you know, listening to jazz because jazz didn't exist yet, or you know, weren't, didn't have access to top forty because that didn't exist yet, you know, music needed to be shown to them in, in verse. So, yeah, I love form because form makes music. I was gonna say, um, it was last year you were at the um, Washington Island Literary Festival. Yeah, and um, I was there during the day of all the readings with the different authors, so I got to listen to you read and. I am a person who definitely respects poetry. I feel afraid of poetry also at the same time. Mm, <laughs> but it was, <laughs> you can really hear that sentiment. I remember when I was listening to you read and just kind of how engaged everybody was. And, you know, it was honestly, I think that was the first for me hearing somebody live read poetry outside of you know a class or something like that i've seen recordings and whatnot but that was also a new experience for me you know and it was oh, it's well, really good no well, thanks for listening and thanks thanks for that uh, yeah. that kindness too i had so much fun at that festival and i had to leave it was really frustrating i couldn't stay for the whole day of readings i only got to hear the first half because mm -hmm. um i had to catch a flight someplace else to do another reading the next day and yeah. it was really Usually I don't mind that because I have a good time traveling and all the rest, but that was one of those times when I wished I had a couple of extra days. You know, it was mm -hmm. such a, that island so beautiful yeah. and everyone was really kind. Went out to the lavender farm and oh, yeah. had some great meals. You know, it just was a really, it was a really wonderful experience being up there. And it was the first time, I can't remember if we talked about that, that's the first time I've been to that part of Wisconsin. Oh north through door county i've never been i've only been to milwaukee and, and green bay oh yeah green bay is a big city yeah and madison too i forgot yeah. i said i don't want to i don't want to neglect madison i had a lot of fun visiting there but you know so i've only been to i guess at like sort of south and central mm -hmm. wisconsin you know i hadn't seen the just gorgeousness of what was going on in yeah. northern wisconsin i just yeah i can't wait to come back yeah. it was really that was really something. Mm -hmm. And everybody at that event, but there were some exceptional prose writers there. Yeah. Just really, really impressive. Alexander Weinstein was one of the people who was was reading. And uh, he runs a like a summer writer's retreat at Martha's Vineyard called the Martha's Vineyard Institute for Creative Writing. I think I've got that right. That I taught at one summer when it was virtual and it was so much fun. So yeah. anyway, I'm sorry. That's a, that's a big tangent. No, that's okay. <laughs> no, that's good. Looking forward to this year as well. We've got some really great authors coming. I was 
lucky enough to be able to chat with Toya Wolf, mm. who's going mm. to be one of the featured authors this year. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, she was great. So is that, I don't know how that, how far that is in relation to where you live, but it feels like it's a, a trip worth taking frequently. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are other islands too. It's not the only one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's the biggest inhabited. We also have a lot of other kind of smaller islands that are not inhabited or there are a few that people only live on during the summer but i grew up i grew up in door county and i grew up in the northern part so i live for people who are around here know i live in elson bay which is the second most northern little town on the main peninsula before you have gills rock and then you take the ferry to the island so i was always very very north and i mean there's people even further north but tried to get up to the island a lot which is always fun but it's always a drag driving south to you know get anywhere <laughs> yeah i guess there's the, there's the positives and then there's the things that are maybe a little less positive yeah. sometimes and i can imagine that winter is kind of complicated oh yeah you know i mean i'm not looking forward to to winter now that i'm in chicago yeah i was gonna say we haven't brought this up yet but it's actually a good transition because i wanted to start talking about this but you're now the editor of poetry magazine yeah which is that just happened this year correct yeah yeah before this i was teaching at indiana university where i also went to undergrad for Mm -hmm. 10 years then this opportunity presented itself and it was pretty hard to hard to say no i mean it's the oldest english language journal devoted to poetry in the world yeah and so, you know, it's, actually my first issue is in October mm-hmm. and it's going to be the 110 year anniversary of wow. the magazine. Yeah. It's a big year. It's a pretty, pretty impressive thing um, that they've been able to do this. And, you know, and it's been great to be a part of because the magazine is, has been changing really radically over the last, you know, maybe five or six years. Mm-hmm. And I get to come and contribute my perspective and my vision. And hopefully we'll, you know, be able to take care of the magazine and take care of the work inside of it with the kind of grace and respect it deserves. Yeah. Kind of on that, I was reading something you had written for Indianapolis Monthly, and you had wrote that you wanted to completely transform Poetry Magazine. For you, what does that look like? Well, I wanted to I wanted to look like what contemporary uh, poetry looks like, not just in the U.S. but globally. You know, I want to think about it as the magazine, you know, the poetry magazine, not just poetry magazine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is me growing up and you know as a Big Ten fan and always laughing at Ohio State calling themselves the Ohio State, but now I get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's it's that's one of the things that I want to do. I want the magazine to think about itself. I want us as editors to think about the work we do as something that's not located in a particular region or nation, but is centered in the art itself. So that means that if you're writing in English or if the work is being translated into English, it can come from any place. And I think that that's what the editors, the co-editors who were here when I got here, were already leaning into, thinking about the the work that it, that appears in the magazine and being representative of 21st century poetics, you know. So there are a couple of things that I'm doing as editor to try to 
activate that. And one of them is that we're only publishing poets once a year, mm-hmm. which used to not be the case. You'd see some poets popping up three or four times a year, and we're not doing that anymore. And that's in part because we want to make room for those poets who haven't had a shot yet. Yeah. We also are committing to only publishing at least half of the magazine as people who have never been in the pages, right? So mm-hmm. 50% of the, the poems in the magazine will be by poets who have not ever been in poetry before. That's mm-hmm. what we're trying to do. And the combination of those two things hopefully will really open up the pages in a way that they had not been. I mean, poetry is an austere institution, you know? I mean, it's, it's earned its place in our conversation artistically as that, as that spot, but we don't want to be the arbiters of what's good about poetry. We want to be like activators Mm-hmm. you know, or enablers of it. We want to, to, you know, curate it, not in, in that way of making choices and just saying, this is good, but that kind of poetry is not good. Yeah. If the quality of the work is good, it doesn't matter what style it is. Yeah. It doesn't matter who wrote it. It just needs to be good. That's what we're working on now is defining good in a public way. Mm-hmm. You know, aware of what happened before, aware of the history and the craft of the art, aware of what's going on right now. I worked for an editor named John Tribble who passed away in 2019. He was a great friend and mentor, and he's a wonderful poet, too. And a long time ago, John told me that, you know, writing poetry isn't that complicated. He's like, all you have to do is, you know, be able to write and have something to say. Mm-hmm. And I, just, I believe that 100%. All yeah. you have to do is be able to know how this stuff works, know the craft that we're talking about, and have something to say. Yeah. And those two things will make a good poem. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's how that's how I'm imagining transforming it is yeah. to make it a a welcoming space, a space that um, even if you don't get in on your first or second try, you know that we we're reading it and we're really here for it. It just means you know we we can only publish so much work each month. Yeah, a lot of times it's a numbers game. Yeah, I like that kind of thought process. Because before, you know, I had said I really respect poetry, but I'm kind of afraid of it. Mm-hmm. Even just in the, it has always felt like a very gate kept art form to me. Where, yeah. You know, if I don't understand it right away, or you know, I'm not interpreting, it always felt like a very scholarly thing, and that I had to really understand it and be able to dissect it um, in order to enjoy it or you know be a part of it. So this push towards accessibility and representation not only with like underrepresented voices and peoples getting published but feeling like you somebody who doesn't necessarily write poetry but might be interested in reading it feels more accessible to me knowing that you know it's not necessarily all about the academic or name i guess yeah yeah, no, that's really good. I understand that that trepidation about poetry. You know what I mean? I think I I felt something similar when I first started, and I certainly felt like that when I was in graduate school, where it seemed like people knew all these things I didn't know. Because <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. I was coming into it from uh, from the performance community too. That's that's really where I learned how to really write poems. I mean, I took workshops and undergraduate and stuff like that, but it was after that but I really started to try to understand what a poem might be. And I learned from watching people perform. 
So I guess in some ways it's not surprising that I care so much about the the sound of things. Mm-hmm. But then when I came into the academy and I came into the university and found that version of poetry and then naming all these poets I'd never heard of and these theorists and that kind of thing, you know, was intimidating at first. And then I realized that a lot of them didn't really know what they were talking about. <laughs> they were just mm-hmm. talking, you know, and their poems reflected that. Yeah. Like their poems reflected that they hadn't actually synthesized the people they were talking about, but instead were just kind of performing in the way that so many of us do. So I'm not saying that in a way that's actually, I'm not trying to diss them, diss my cohort from graduate school at all. They're all very nice, but I also understand that need when you get into those spaces to to perform and mm-hmm. to seem like you're supposed to be there, and that's what a lot of them were doing. I didn't even know how to, so I just was in there very confused at first, and then eventually I figured out figured out how it worked. I think that's the problem, though, right? I want to I don't want to get away from that the, your original point because poetry has been connected to the academy now for I don't know the, at least seventy years. I mean, it really I think the first MFA program was in nineteen forty eight, forty seven. Mm-hmm. Before that, poets were just. You know, poets were doctors and accountants and construction workers and nurses. You know, they weren't poets. So few people were actual poets. Like, that's as a, their main source of income. Mm-hmm. I think that's still true now. Most poets are teachers. And that's how they get health care and that's how they do the work. And that's great. But it also means that sometimes the poetry can become... It can get changed mm-hmm. by the academy. Yeah. It can get changed by what the university expects. And that's a, that's a fight that the poets have to have, you know, with themselves and with the page. Like, how do I keep this about, you know, about the work I want? How do I keep this about the, the audience who might be reading or listening rather than the person who's going to be writing tenure letters for me? Yeah. You know, I mean, I had to do that. I had that same fight. Mm-hmm. You know, for I mean, because I was I was uh, a professor for um, sixteen years, so you know I know that that culture pretty intimately. Mm-hmm. And I'm uh, you know I'm going to go. I mean, I'm going back to teach next fall, so it's not like I'm completely removed from it. But I think I got to a point where it didn't matter anymore, and I was able to kind of write the poems I wanted to write instead of what I thought somebody might want me to write. Kind of in that same vein, you know, with this talking about changing poetry magazine and access how does it feel to be in this position where you get to be the person that is holding the door open for so many underrepresented voices and experiences yeah you know there there was an entire group of poets and artists who did that for me so i feel like I'm hopefully giving back a little bit of what I was given, mm-hmm. but it's not charity. It's overdue, right? Like yeah. this should have been, this, this is how, I mean, in my estimation, it should have been always. Yeah. The best poems should be the ones that we focus on rather than who wrote the poems and in what university they attended or who they know. And so it's really, it's really good to be, be self-aware in that way, right? I, like, mm-hmm. yeah, I look at this and I think, man, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the fact that so many other poets figured out how to navigate the academy and figured out how to make space in homogenous journals for other people, and there I was. I mean, the first time I was in Poetry Magazine, I was the only black poet in it. Mm-hmm. That whole issue was just me. So to go from that to where we are now is, I think, pretty significant, but I didn't do that. It was already happening when I got here. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. So now all I'm doing is just kind of trying to build out and give back what I've been given. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've just been really fortunate to have people support me in those ways over the years. And I hope that I'm, you know, honoring the work they did for me by doing that work for other people. We're going to transition a little bit out of the poetry magazine and kind of get into just some fun general writing questions. So what does writing poetry look like to you? Or more specifically, writing habits. Do you have any writing habits that you like to stick to? You know, I used to. But they all they got all messed up when we moved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, you know, this has been a very intense transition. You know, just I've been I've been running this magazine now for a little more than three months, oh. and I've been in Chicago. My wife and I've been here for two months. So it was that first month when I was on board, and I was doing it all remotely while we packed our house and. Mm-hmm. <laughs> found a new place to live. You know, all of that's been going on in the last three months. So when I've been able to write, it's been on the weekends. And I, but I'm also in the process of doing the proofreading and pages for the graphic novel. Mm-hmm. So all of that kind of stuff is, is messing up my process. But ordinarily, you know, when when things settle down, what will happen is that I'll be, uh, I think I'm going to have to get up early in the morning to work. Because by the time I come home and after I've been reading poems all day, I don't really want to to write them. Mm-hmm. But in the morning, I've got a fresh perspective, so I get up pretty early, read somebody else's work. You know, I'm really lucky like that now because also my job yeah. <laughs> to read stuff. But I just you know I pick a book off my shelf and read some read some poems to get my my brain working, and then just sit down and write. Sometimes it's, I'm responding to a poem that I, I just read. Other times I'm, uh, you know, there's a line or a phrase that inspires something. Other times I have something I'm thinking about that I want to try to 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 get into the world. You know, I saw something on Twitter this morning. This guy was somebody said, you know, people on Twitter say a lot of things, but somebody said that we had this opportunity after COVID to reimagine work and to reimagine the spaces we work in and access to those spaces. Mm-hmm. But instead, we pushed to go back to exactly what we were doing before. And I've been thinking about that all morning. There's not a poem in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I've been thinking about that ever since I read it because it's true. You know, we work a flex hybrid schedule at the Poetry Foundation, you know, but a lot of the stuff that we do, we could just be doing from home. And then there are other things that only exist because we're in the room together talking. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so trying to understand how to operate in the world differently now or take advantage of the opportunities that these things have presented, like we were talking about earlier with technology, mm-hmm. that seems to me to be, I need to spend more time thinking about that. Mm-hmm. This isn't a tangent because what I came to realize while I was on the bus to work is that there's an essay I need to write about it. And so my writing process is trying to be open to the world and trying to be inspired by whatever is coming my way and then trying to figure out how to synthesize and take advantage of that inspiration. For those who are unsure about exploring poetry, whether that be writing it or reading it, what advice do you have for them? You know, rather than advice, I have an important statement for I think everyone who mm-hmm. is thinking about poems needs to hear. It's like, you know, bad poetry never hurt anybody. And everybody writes bad poems when they start. 
And so it's just a matter of letting yourself figure it out and not putting pressure on yourself. Mm -hmm. Just starting to write, you know? I mean, I have my notebooks from the first poems I wrote, and they are awful. Like, I just thought that Mm -hmm. a poem was every big word I could think of put together. (laughs) You know? Mm -hmm. I'm looking at these things, like, I don't even... I thought it meant something. And my girlfriend told me that it seemed really mysterious, so that seemed cool. You know, um, and I realized now it was just really bad poems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so, I mean, my my advice really is that, like, to embrace the idea that to start writing poems means that you're going to be failing for a while, but that failure leads to a much more profound understanding of the world if you continue with it. Go and read books, you know. Every once in a while I'll have a student or somebody I'm working with who says something along the lines of, well, I don't like to read poetry because I don't want it to influence my voice. And that's, you know, a very limited perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, if I didn't read T.S. Eliot, I wouldn't understand many things mm-hmm. uh, about the about the line. If I didn't read Emily Dickinson, I would have no idea about how to use punctuation. You know, mm-hmm. so reading and giving yourself permission to fail are the two greatest pieces of advice anybody that I could give someone. Specifically, for the people who are going to be entering our Hell Prize contest, what would you be looking for in a submission? Oh, well, you know, we were talking a little about this earlier. Like, I mean, all I'm, all I'm interested in is poems that are well-written and have a pronounced point of view and something to mm-hmm. say. But, you know, like I said, I love poems with music, but that's different. Like, we're talking about the poems that I'm interested in and trying to write. not you know I don't want people to write poems like I write I want them to write poems like they write so it's all about perspective and you know and writing something that's well crafted doesn't matter what it's about doesn't matter what style it's in just matters that it's been done with care so any last thing that you want people our listeners to know about you about poetry that we can land on at the end of this anybody who's interested in writing poetry should read ross gay's book the catalog of unabashed gratitude it's such a good book and has such a beautiful perspective on the world and also is especially wonderful if you like to grow things or be out in nature well there you go read it (laughs) that's right catalog of unabashed gratitude is a long title but it's worth worth the read thank you for taking the time today and working through these tech issues that we've been having a little bit just to quickly for everyone submissions if you'd like to submit to the hell prize we take submissions in fiction nonfiction, poetry and photography the deadline is september 16th which is coming up go to thehellprize.com we have all the info there on how to submit more info on our judges and our literary review which the winners are going to be printed in 8142 review you can find all the details there. So thanks again, Adrian. Great chatting. No, it was great talking with you, Grace. Thanks. And I am so excited to, to read everyone's work. So I hope that you get a ton of submissions. And I we do can, as well. Uh, <laughs> and we'll read some good poetry. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.